0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. Today's episode is a three-parter. First, David Wessel's economic update. Second, an update on the West's water crisis. And finally, my conversation with one of the world's most
1: accomplished diplomats. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. There's an appealing, simple narrative circulating that goes something like this. The Federal Reserve bought trillions of dollars of bonds, it was called quantitative easing, and that pushed investors into the stock market. Stock prices rose, the rich hold most of the stocks, they got richer. Therefore, the story goes, the Fed contributed to rising inequality in the United States. Reality isn't so simple, though, as we learned recently when the Hutchins Center asked three economists to examine the question did the Fed's quantitative easing really increase inequality? And we asked three former Fed officials, Ben Bernanke, Don Cohn, and Kevin Warsh, to respond. We learned a few interesting things. One, anything, monetary policy, fiscal policy, divine intervention that pushes down the unemployment rate, helps those at the bottom, and reduced inequality during the Great Recession. Two, When asset prices go up, people who own assets do better than people who don't. That's obvious. But to understand the effects of QE, you have to look at housing prices, too, because two-thirds of middle-class Americans' wealth is in their houses. So to the extent the Fed helped cut mortgage rates and boost house prices, a couple of economists argued that effect probably did more to reduce inequality than the increase in stock prices increased inequality. Three, you have to do a compared to what exercise. Sure, if the Fed had done less, Congress might have done more, more spending increases, more tax cuts, and that could have helped the economy and reduced inequality. But no one can be sure of that outcome. Inaction by the Fed and inaction by Congress in 2010 surely would have meant even higher unemployment and lower wages than we experience, and that would have made inequality worse. Four, Veterans of the Fed don't see eye-to-eye on this question. Kevin Warsh, the former Fed governor, thinks the Fed's policy have favored financial assets over factories, computers, and equipment, and so he thinks that's probably increased inequality. Ben Bernanke is unconvinced, and Bernanke and his former number two, Don Cohn, do agree on one thing. The Fed should do everything it can to achieve maximum employment and price stability and let Congress figure out what to do, if anything, about rising economic inequality. You can watch the whole discussion we had at the Hutchins Center and read the papers for yourself at www.brookings.edu, Hutchins Center. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update.
0: Thanks, David. In part two, I'm going to hand over the mic to my colleague George Burroughs, who follows up with water expert Pat Mulroy on the water crisis and responses in Nevada and California. An update to our podcast published in April. Mulroy is editor of a forthcoming Brookings Institution press title, Water Policy in the Face of Climate Change, Strategies for Resilience, Sustainability, and Regional
2: Competitiveness. I'd like to thank Pat Mulroy for coming back to join us on our podcast here. And we're just going to do a little follow-up segment from the last time we spoke. Pat, thank you for coming to the district to see us. Listen, my pleasure to be here. This is great. Pat, since we last spoke a couple months ago, the water level like me dropped below that magic number, which was 1080 feet. Once it drops below 1075 feet, the lake goes into shortages. And as you said, all
3: of us take a haircut. What does the future look like when that happens? Actually, Nevada is in a great place. Um, In 2002, when we first confronted the reality that the world on the Colorado River was going to change dramatically and that that shortages were going to become the norm, we decided that we would take Southern Nevada through a very aggressive conservation plan and program early to where when the shortages come, no draconian measures have to be taken. So where Southern Nevada sits now is they will take a haircut off their allocation that they're entitled to off the Colorado River, but they're already 60,000 acre-feet below that. So. They've reduced their water use so dramatically, um, by forty percent, that no one in Southern Nevada will even know that we've been cut back.
2: So you're re- Nevada is really ahead of the curve on this one.
3: We had to be. Yes, and this is a very different storyline
2: that's been played out in California since we last talked. Again, a big development out there. California enacted its first ever water restrictions. How do you think those are going to do at this point?
3: Well, I think they're going to be effective because if the state is true to its word and the, tr- and the state enforces um, those restrictions, then the cities have no choice but to really start getting serious about rolling back their water use.
2: The story that we've been hearing, a big storyline is that the cities took all these cuts, and agriculture was spared in this round of the first-ever restrictions. Is well, that but those,
3: true? No, it's not true. I mean, agriculture last year was decimated, and agriculture this year is in no better shape. What Governor Brown said was, look, agriculture's already taken such a huge hit— where we really have an opportunity to cut our water use back further is to now really focus on urban use. And that's what those restrictions were all about. See, the urbanites have done a fabulous job building large reservoirs. I mean, I look at the reservoir system the Metropolitan Water District has, and they were very smart and very strategic. They had leased agricultural water from... Um, Palo Verde early on, and they had stored that water behind Hoover Dam. So last year, it was Colorado River water that kept Southern California alive. Well, now they're going to also have to conserve. And whereas MET has always been in the conservation game, doling out money as incentives for conservation. It's been up to the retail agencies, their member agencies, to make those come alive. And the governor's message is to those retail agencies. Yes, you've done a good job building infrastructure and having reserve water, but we got to go further because the Colorado River, is. when that crashes, when that goes below 1075, and I tend to believe it's going to go below 1075, Met's not going to be able to take additional stored water out of meat. They'll be restricted to their base allocation.
2: And so agriculture has already taken all the hits. Before this, restrictions were imposed, so they really couldn't give anymore.
3: Well, there's nothing to give. Nothing
2: to give, right. Uh, with these restrictions coming down on California finally, as a whole, a story in the West for the United States, is it everyone's going to be coming on the same team now, you think, And as far as water conservation goes in the West? Is this a big piece of the puzzle?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't think that there is... a, And I don't think it's restricted to the West. I think you can go down into Florida. I think you can go into... Because even in the East Coast, there have been droughts in the Atlanta area and the Georgia area. I mean, we're going to go through drought periods. As our populations and our economies grow and manufacturing starts taking on more water and more people come into the cities, I think it is a baseline that individual water use come down. I mean, let's be honest. Citizens of the United States use more water per capita than any other country on the planet. Why? Because we could. Well, those days are over. And this is a reality shock to some people, but it's time to get serious and say, these aren't life-changing alterations we have to make. But just like we're aware of how much power we use because the price is so exorbitantly high, we need to become aware of how much water we use. It is a finite resource.
2: Pat, this is great. I'm glad you came out to visit and uh, give me another reality check that we need on this water here. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Pat. You're
3: welcome.
0: My guest today is Javier Solana, a distinguished fellow in foreign policy at Brookings, And what a distinguished career he has had. Indeed, elected to the Spanish parliament, Spain's minister of culture, minister of education and science, and Spain's minister of foreign affairs. NATO secretary general, secretary general of the Council of the European Union, and the first high representative for the common foreign and security policy of the EU. A native of Madrid, he also has a PhD in physics from the University of Virginia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Solana. Thank you very much. So you have a PhD in physics how did you move from getting a doctorate in physics into a career that has brought you into the highest levels of spanish government and of of european institutions
4: well i i I come from a family of scientists uh, my father was a professor of chemistry and uh, I wanted to be a physicist and uh, if possible to go to go to teaching in physics uh, and get a chair in a good university um I came to the uh, United States uh, with a Fulbright scholar Uh, and then I I finished my studies here. I was a professor here also in the United States for a while, an assistant professor and then I I returned to Spain about the times of the the end of the Franco dictatorship and that was a time of turmoil, but positive turmoil and uh, everybody was called to duty in politics uh, and I, I was a member of the of the Constitutional Commission, the commission that wrote the Constitution. And then, uh, well, uh, we won the elections, I was in government, uh, and uh, I continued like that until I went to the foreign ministry. I stayed for a long time there. I was very lucky. Uh, I constructed a very good relationship with many people, in particular with, uh, with Americans. Uh, the ambassador of the United Nations was Marie Norbert, President was President Clinton. We had a very good relationship, and uh, at a given moment, they told me, "Why don't you take NATO, which is vacant?" And then I said, "Well, I don't. This is not what I expect in real life," and uh, and I I tried to say no, and I said no in fact, but they kept insisting, and I, well, and I couldn't say no, but this really the first time that uh, somebody from the south of Europe <laughs> was Secretary General of NATO that normally has been an Anglo-Saxon type of uh, ordinary in Europe in the European in NATO. And then uh, I, uh, when I finished, uh, I was called uh, for duty and then this time from the European Union. They wanted to, re- to construct a uh, uh, foreign and security policy common. And uh, I was in charge to construct that building. And I spent 10 years with that uh, construction of that uh, new building, a new action of the European Union and security and foreign policy.
0: It's quite an interesting journey. I think it's fascinating how we end up uh, going one direction and we end up in a different place. What does the European Union mean to you personally?
4: Well, for me, it it signifies a, a lot. I come from a liberal family in Spain very pro-European. Uh, my family members of my family were uh, exiles in the in in the United Kingdom, uh, professors of Oxford. Uh, my, grand, my father was a member of the Arab of the League of Nations in the at the end of the First World War, and uh, for us, uh, Europe was uh, part of our our life. It is true that uh, due to the fact that Spain was a dictatorship uh, we were not part of the European Union until late, very late. I was already more than 30 years, about well, 40 years of age when we entered into the European Union therefore really late and um, and for me it was a great satisfaction Um from there on uh, I continued to be a an active European in the institutions, which I couldn't do it before. And I am a very profound, convinced person that the European Union is, uh, is uh, in a way, a treasure. It's a treasure uh, that signifies peace, signifies cooperation, signifies cession uh, of sovereignty. So the type of things that the global world of today needs.
0: You've you've written about what you call a, quote, middle ground uh, in the European Union between what you also called two extreme scenarios, which would be imposed integration within the EU system and absolute national sovereignty, which uh, is somewhat incompatible with being a member state. What is this middle ground?
4: Well, the middle ground is the reality of the European Union. The European Union is not imposed into anybody. You have to, to ask to be part of the European Union. Nobody forced you to be part of the European Union. But when you enter into the European Union, you know that you have to give part of your sovereignty to uh, the European Union. And that is the beauty. The interdependence of the members of the European Union, the member states, creates uh, a type of affinity that uh, uh, makes, to my mind, a territory, which is a European continent who in the 20th century exported two wars, the wars that became global wars, and uh, today it's inconceivable, this type of behavior. So, therefore, it's a great achievement, and I am very proud that uh, the Europeans of a generation prior to mine were able to do it. It's my obligation, I think, to cooperate, to maintain that alive.
0: Let's talk about European nationalism for a second, though. How uh, do the institutions of the European Union react to and navigate through these shoals of of nationalism that we see? Is that a a problem?
4: Well, it's a reality. Uh, The reality is uh, that uh, after the crisis, during the crisis, uh, people suffer. When people suffer, they become uh, uh, less happy with the situation and they try to find artificial solutions. And one of the artificial solutions that history has uh, put in their hands uh, in several occasions along the times is nationalism. But uh, nationalism is, is, is a big mistake to my mind. Uh, nationalism is, is, is like, a, it's impossible to, it's a sentiment, it's not a rational decision. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, you cannot argue about that. So I think nationalism is uh, is something which is bad in itself. I think that uh, in the times that we are living, in the times of internet, the time for integration, for globalization, for trying to recognize that borders are not that important, that uh, we are neighbors of everybody and everybody is neighbors of us, even if we are not physically neighbors. Think about the climate change, for instance. You, you know, you contaminate the sky. You don't contaminate your sky. You contaminate the sky. And Therefore, the solution has to be a solution that has to be global, because the problem is global. So nationalism is a big mistake.
0: But do you think people retreat into nationalism because they're afraid of globaliza- globalization? I think it's a
4: reaction of fear. Uh, not not so much of fear of globalization, but uh, fear of the consequences of this crisis. The crisis of the years has been really very tough, uh, very dramatic in some countries, in every country, uh, more in one than in others. And um, remember what happened also in the crisis of 1929, when, uh, it was uh, also a reaction of nationalism that, uh, don't forget that that uh, reaction of nationalism led to a war.
0: We uh, we see in the media um, a supposed conflict between, say, Germany and Greece, uh, the creditor nations of the northern part of Europe, the debtor nations of the southern part of Europe. Uh, In April, Brookings hosted the finance ministers of both countries in back-to-back events on the same day. What do you make of uh, of the situation, say, between Germany and Greece right now?
4: Well, the situation between Germany and Greece uh, is a situation that uh, derives from a position of the Greeks that after the elections uh, they wanted to have a continuation of a program to help their economy, but without uh, uh, all the obligations that came attached to the program on reforms, on the taxation, reforms on uh, civil servants, reforms on labor laws, etc., etc. But that is not a tension to Germany and, uh, and Greece. It's a tension between the European Union members of the Eurozone and Greece, um, I hope very much that this is going to be resolved. I would like uh, that uh, the resolution will be well, – or the mechanism will be found immediately because uh, as time goes by, the solution will be more difficult because the banks of uh, Greece will be more and more uh, empty. The money is, is running out. And uh, so the, the sooner we get the agreement, the better.
0: I should point out that the Greek finance minister did say uh, – uh, Greece leaving the Eurozone would be incomprehensible. Uh, people can go to our website and, and uh, learn all about that. Um, let's talk about the European Union's response to some external crises, specifically Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how it's dealing with Iran's nuclear program.
4: Okay. On the on both crises as you have defined them, uh, we have re- reacted uh, uh, pretty much in control with the United States. Uh, it is true that it's uh, in our territories, in Europe, is not in the territory of the United States, therefore we have uh, an extra responsibility there. But uh, the mechanism we put in place uh, vis-a-vis Russia has been to try to find an agreement, uh, the Minsk Agreement, that uh, today is supported not only by the European Union, but also for the United States. Uh, The other day was here, and Brookings, the Secretary of State and the Vice President, and both very clearly said that they support the Minsk Agreement. And uh, in relation with Tehran, uh, we have been part of the P5 plus 5 in the sense that the European Union is represented also with the members of the Security Council. And uh, therefore, we are again in the same wavelength. I had the privilege to to lead those negotiations in, on behalf of the Europeans and the and the P5 for many years at the beginning, and um, I'm very very happy to see that uh, this looks like a, a solution can be found finally, finally, in, the, in at the end of the of next month.
0: What do you think uh, the European Union is best at, and what do you think it could do better?
4: Well, the uh, best I think is uh, some elements of of, of solidarity that exist within the, Lat- uh, the European Union. There are funds which are given to countries which, uh, until they have the average of the per capita rent uh, um, in, the, in the European Union. This is something which is very good because of the compensation. That you offer your market to other countries would have uh, their development, uh, their, their economy more developed. So, but the, the, to my mind, the, the most important thing is uh, the single market. We are a market, and um, and uh, from that market you construct units that go beyond the single market. For instance, uh, we have uh, a mechanism to control the borders. We don't have. Uh, borders among countries. We have borders only on the countries of the periphery of the European Union. So once you enter into the European Union, you have free movement to every country. And then um, in the last period of time, without any doubt, the most important thing has been the Eurozone and the Euro. Um, Although the crisis uh, came too early, where after the, the introduction of the euro, I think the euro is a very solid construction that is going to last. Um, looking ahead,
0: uh, you've written that the most important date for the European Union is 2017. Uh, I think it has something to do with elections in France and Germany. Why, why was that Seventeen important
4: date? Is, uh, well, 17 is, is the three things which are taking place. is the referendum uh, of the UK, United Kingdom, and uh, it will be in that year, well, elections here also, a new president here, and uh, elections uh, in Germany and in France. So, and three important countries of the European Union are going to go through important or potential important changes. And on top of that, you will have a change in the United States. So, it will be, well, I, it's important for uh, the number of elections that are taking place in important countries in the world.
0: Let's, uh, let's broaden just a little bit beyond the European Union. Let me ask you, what do you see as the greatest uh, challenge or challenges in the world today?
4: Oh, my goodness, that's not an easy question. It depends on what, uh, I mean, I think one of the most important challenges is uh, climate change. And the meeting that will take place in Paris in December of this particular year, it will be uh, fundamental. And this, we are not able to... Really, put in the right, in the right direction, the measures which are necessary globally to calm the the temperature. rates and in the in the world um, we are going to suffer a lot. Not we will not feel it the day after, but the next generation, without any doubt, we will left to them a planet much more complicated from from the one we receive. Um, on from the point of view of uh, security, I think that uh, it's very important that uh, uh, the situation in the in the Middle East, uh, the Grand Middle East or the Greater Middle East, is resolved. ISIS is a great problem. The situation in Syria, the situation in, in Iraq, etc. And uh, another border of the European Union, the eastern border. Ukraine, Crimea, Russia, um, well, it's a problem that uh, it it has to be resolved, as we talked before about that, but it's a a serious problem because Russia is not a minor country, and uh, uh, breaking the rules of the game that were approved in Helsinki a long time back is not something that we can uh, allow without some kind of uh, of, uh, reaction. And the reaction for the moment, as I said, is a reaction which isn't a soft power. It's a reaction that uh, has been more on the side of of sanctions than uh, economic sanctions, and uh, on that direction, we're going to continue moving on.
0: Uh, I want to uh, I want to close our interview by coming back to you and your career, if I may. Um, you've earned many awards and accolades during your distinguished career, including the Charlemagne Prize for your Contributions to European unification. Um, You're also one of a handful of living members of the Spanish Order of the Golden Fleece, uh, having been appointed a knight by King Juan Carlos I of Spain for your public service in diplomacy. Um, If you were going to give advice to uh, young diplomats around the world today, what would you say to them?
4: Well, uh, to everybody, not to diplomats, to everybody, I will say you have to face your life as much as possible as a global citizen. Therefore, you have to understand how others think, how others live. And uh, put it as part of your life. Try to understand the other. We are in a global world, as I said before, without borders. You better understand the others, and the others have to understand you. Now, um, if at the same time he is a diplomat, I will... Diplomat, diplomacy is really negotiation. Uh, it's, convic- it's, it's trying to convince other, And in order to convince other, it's very important to know the other. So to put yourself in the position of the other, understand why his uh, positions are the part that they have of reasonable from their side, the part that you cannot accept because it's a red line. All these things would require... To my mind, a lot of work, uh, tenacity, a lot of tenacity. We are seeing in the negotiations with uh, with Tehran. Uh, in the last round of negotiation. Uh, the tenacity of Secretary Kerry, for instance, is, is 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 the example of a of a good diplomacy. never never say the end has arrived. Uh, try to get to continue, continue pushing because at the end of the day, it's still you may find a solution.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Solana, for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Javier Solana and his research on our website, brookings.edu. He is also a frequent contributor to Project Syndicate. You can find his columns there at project-syndicate.org. My thanks to my producer, Zach Kolzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Vizer and Eric Abalahin. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu.